Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Welcome to Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for joining us. We are America's talk radio show about opera, period. No one talks with you about opera week in, week out like we do. What's more, on our show, you get to have your say live on the air. So call us on 847-866-WNUR. That's 847 847- Eight six six nine six eight seven, or you can leave us a message on two two four two one eight nine box. Again, two two four two one eight nine two six nine. Tell us what your opinion is on our chalk talk segments. Show off by taking our opera quiz or getting on the ring and referee our TKO segment. Now, on tonight's show, I take you through the crisis brewing at English National Opera, London's major opera house dedicated to performing opera in English. The artistic director has quit, the budget has been cut, and the chorus is protesting. Is this the end of the road for ENO? But first, my co-host Oliver Macho Camacho rants about performance etiquette. Audiences are clapping less, singers are bowing more. What's up with all that? And I've also got all your opera headlines. And at the bottom of the hour, our Monday evening quarterback tackles the current production of Strauss's De Rosenkavalier at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Let's do this. We are live. No edits, no filters. Kickoff is next. Keep it locked right here, right now on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago, and Opera Box. Opera Class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and Giovanna Jacques. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Yeah. Uh, hey, how's your week been, buddy? Great. Um, I uh, got a chance to see Der Rosenkavalier at uh, Lyric Opera, and uh, we'll be talking about that uh, later on in the show. But it was uh, definitely a real treat. It's not a show we get to see that often because of how gargantuan it is to put that thing on, you know? Yeah, I can't wait. I'm going with my dad at the end of uh, middle of March, and um, we'll talk about it later on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll get to it we'll very soon. A, we'll do it there. So uh, in this first segment, I thought, you know, it's kind of a – slow news week so we would go to one of our perennial topics uh which is audiences and applauding and if there's time we might even get a chance to talk about the, bow- the bowing etiquette or etiquette of bowing yeah but i really what, what made me think of this was um a couple weeks ago of uh, the met broadcast uh the radio broadcast they had um cavalier rusticana okay. and pagliacci the famous double bill and the uh, conductor fabio luizzi left this big pause after the Easter chorus. And it's a beautiful moment for soloists and, like, double choir. And it's just glorious music. And there's clearly, like, an applause break built into it. It's the big moment of that show. And it didn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know if the audience was just not really loving the production or if people are scared and they're sitting on their hands now because they don't want to do the wrong thing. Yeah, But, uh... I, you know, speaking of Rosenkavalier, uh, they built in a little bit of a joke um, when the Italian singer sings his song in the first act, right. which German operas typically don't have applause breaks written into them. But, um, you know, the Baronox uh, began to applaud after uh, after the Italian singer sing after the Italian singer singer sang. 
and uh, the rest of the crowd on stage shushed him. So uh, it sort of reinforces that idea that, like, you know, yes, you want to applaud here, but don't because this is a German opera. And, you know, I'm just wondering, like, what's happening? And, and, like, is it because we don't have enough people who are educated? And this sounds terrible. I love you, audience. (laughs) But, but like, our our audience is not going to the opera enough where they know where it's acceptable to applaud and, you know, what lines really merited, like what feet, what vocal feats really merited, and like what composers really have built in, you know, uh, post music, you know, that's kind of insipid where you can kind of applaud. I mean, like, for example, the famous entrance aria of Norma in the opera Norma, Casta Diva, you know, yeah, at Bibellini, at the end of the Cabaletto, the fast section, there's like the most insipid march music ever written, and right. it's clear that you can applaud over this. It's like, it's not worth listening to, you know? Um, I brought a couple of examples of of great applause uh, from years gone by. Um, We're going to hear these three in succession just so we can get the idea of what I'm talking about. It really felt like at the time that opera was sport, and I feel like we're missing that. Uh, We're going to hear in this order, 1954, baritone Gian Giacomo Guelfi, uh, from a, a performance of Aida at, in Naples at Teatro di San Carlo. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not necessarily a place where one would stop the opera, but this audience is so into it that they did. Uh, this is in the middle of the duet in the Nile scene where uh, the baritone Amanazro uh, basically tells his daughter off and disowns her and says, you know, you're no longer my daughter. You are now the slave of the Pharaoh. Uh, after that, we will hear... Maria Callas from 1955 at La Scala, one of the best live recordings of the opera La Traviata. Uh, this is the famous uh, scene in Act Two where she's writing the letter to Alfredo uh, saying that she's leaving him and he catches her writing it and she h- tries to hide the letter and she you know, has a messenger deliver it after she takes off. But you know, as she's saying goodbye to Alfredo, she's pretending everything's okay, but she says, you know, ah, mami Alfredo, just you know, love me as much as I love you, but everything's fine, I gotta go. And then the audience is just insane after she sings this line. And lastly, something a little bit more recent, uh, our Luciano Pavarotti from the Vienna State Opera uh, singing the Romanza at, in the third act of Un Balo en Mascara. Uh, this is from 1978, uh, but, you know, Pavarotti was in his prime. And, you know, he's not even finished singing the note and the op- audience applauds because it's so good. So this is about three minutes of tunes here for you guys. That's great. Okay, cool. So let's take a listen. And we're listening to sort of the applause here and... And he- just what inspires applause. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right, great. Leo, take it away.
if you actually find this clip on YouTube, you look it up, uh, 1954 Aida, uh, you can look, look up Cerquetti and Guelfi duet. Um, yeah, this audience wants, they love it so much, they want the conductor to encore it, encore the duet. Uh, not even, they haven't even finished the duet yet, you know, but that's how involved the audience was. And that's time. not something that we're hearing today in the opera house. Definitely nope. not. Yeah. I, I mean, you would never, never really hear somebody, an audience saying, look, we want to hear that thing again. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, we have had recently, very recently, uh, some encores, uh, which is what, you know, ultimately applause can achieve if, if the applause goes on long enough. Um, yeah. Juan Diego Flores, the um, Peruvian tenor, uh, was given an encore of Ameza Mi, the famous mm-hmm. uh, tenor aria that has 10 high C's in it. You know, That happened just a couple of years ago. Um, sometimes Va Pensiero, the chorus from Nabucco, gets, gets encored because of applause. Um, and it's the only big number in that show, right? <laughs> What's the one tune most people know? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I just wonder if like this you know, lack of kind of like rowdy applause is just representative of the new, you know, cultural ignorance, you know? Here's here's my director's take on it, okay. is that applause diffuses tension. And that the whole purpose of applause is not only to let the audience show their appreciation for what they've just seen, but it's actually to to let themselves release any sort of emotion that they have. And I think actually smart directors are able to control that. Um, I, I directed Sweeney Todd uh, as my thesis in, in graduate school. And let's call it an opera, say, that there's like set pieces, there's arias, there's ensembles, there's breaks in the musical structure. of it. But in talking with the conductor, I said, look, you know, this is a piece that's entirely built on suspense. We should prevent the audience from being able to applaud at any point during the first act. And he thought it was a, a great idea. And so we not exactly added music to it, but we made it so that the transitions musically between each of the numbers was basically seamless. And I remember sitting in the house one night watching it, and the audience wanted to applaud. I mean, their hands were inches apart, and they weren't able to. And I'll tell you, the applause at the end of the first act, nothing to do with how good or bad the show was. It was because this audience was so desperate to clap that they just erupted. So I think that that's actually... But did it last long enough for you? Did it it feel... I mean, I got a a buzz out of it, yeah. I thought it was... I thought it was exciting. I thought it was great. What shows were these? This this was Sweeney Todd. Okay. Um, So, yeah, okay. So, I mean, I feel like Sweeney Todd is a show that that actually can have space in it. Right. And and we we were specifically not giving our audience that space. Let's look at an opera, say, by Mozart, where it's yeah. like very much these set pieces. Yeah. Ours, duets, trios. Okay, so here we are. We're going to educate the audience. Yeah. Okay, so if it's an opera before, let's say, 1850, like mm-hmm. all the way up to up to early, early Verdi, we're talking Baroque operas, um, Mozart. Mm-hmm. And Rossini. A, 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 Italian bel canto, you right. know, Rossini, Bellini, Donizetti, and um, what's his name? And early Verdi. Verdi. Um, the operas are what we call number operas, and they, um, you know, the, the way they're organized in the score, uh, there are set pieces. They, right. they begin and the end. There's other, obviously other operas that fall into that pattern, but this is like standard repertoire. Um, more often than not, if a singer has an entrance aria or like a big scene with lots of, you know, color to and high notes, there's going to be 
a cadence, like, you know, a, a, you know, an ending that's going to say, oh, that's the end of the piece. That really is the end of the piece. You'll know it, you know? Right. And that it's totally okay to applaud. Um, the operas that start to get confusing are maybe slightly later, later Verdi, like an opera like, um, well, let's go to the end of Verdi's career, an opera like Otello mm -hmm. or Falstaff mm -hmm. are written almost in the style of German operas where they're contiguous, you know, and you don't really feel the break between numbers, between aria and scene. Right. Um, there's also... Um, so like Strauss, as you said, Strauss In general, Strauss operas don't have... A, Strauss and Wagner operas don't have applause breaks. Yeah. There are some great moments that most people applaud, like um, the entrance aria of Elizabeth and Tannhäuser, is that her name? Mm -hmm. And uh, Ariadne of Naxos is a Strauss opera that sort of has numbers in it because it's sort of parodying, you know, parodying... Uh, opera seria. It's meant to be you know? episodic, so yeah. it has that yeah. so, to make that joke. Right? Yeah, so Ariadne has a great aria, and Zerbinaz has a great aria that, that definitely ask for applause. Yeah, so Puccini is, is tricky. Uh, an aria like Nessun Dorma, for example, everybody knows that it's the one that all the tenors sing, and they right. sing at the soccer games and whatnot. Aretha Franklin <laughs> sings it, you know. Um, the score doesn't really have an applause break, Yeah, but most conductors know that people are going to applaud, so they'll hold... Like the postlude music. You know? Well, and I don't, I, you know, ultimately, Oliver, I don't think it's the audience's job to know the show well enough to know when to applaud. It's, it's really the conductor's job. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's his or her job to, to sculpt the conductor the or the director? Uh, well, I mean, in tandem, the two of them, the conductor, I think, ultimately would make the, make the decision probably. I'm not saying that's the right way to do it. Uh, but it's not the audience's job. They really need to be led, and they need to be told where uh, where to clap. Final okay. thought on this before well, just, we move on. Well, just like one minute. Go for it, baby. More, yeah. Uh, because I was. It was Renee Renee Fleming's. It was Lanteen Price's birthday. It was also Renee Fleming's birthday on the fourteenth. But it was Lanteen Price's birth <laughs> yeah. birthday a little bit yeah. earlier than that last week. And I was just watching a bunch of videos, and she has this really kind of cute thing that she does uh, where, you know, the audience is applauding before the piece is even over. Right. And she goes right into a deep bow, not even acknowledging, like, that the piece is still might be happening. <laughs> you know, you know? And, yeah, she just does a quick bow, which is really, like, idiosyncratic of her. But if you are a young singer and you are doing uh, a recital situation like you and a pianist, please, 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 do not bow until you have first acknowledged the pianist. And you don't have to, like, stick your arm out and, like, point to him. But what you do have to do is, like, let the piece finish and then just at least make eye contact with the pianist. <laughs> and then you could take your bow together. The pianist might want you to take the bow first. Yeah. But you are collaborating, especially if it's not an aria thing, if it's, like, an art song. You know, you must give the pianist equal, you know, acknowledgement. Because without him or her, you'd be singing, standing up there singing a cappella, you know. If you're singing a cappella, go for it, you know. <laughs> But it's yeah, solid advice yes. from Oliver Camacho. There's there's more to say on bowing actually, and I think we're going to save that for another yeah. episode. Part probably. two, exactly <laughs> to be to be continued. <laughs> You're listening to Opera Box Score on 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. This is WNUR. We're also uh, our show is on Twitter at Opera Box Score. We're going to step aside briefly, and we'll be right back with the two minute drill. Here we go. This just in. The two-minute drill. Here's everything you need to know about the opera world in the two minutes. 
rapper in New York City canceled his appearance with an orchestra in Philadelphia. A press release said the concert would be detrimental to his current medical treatment, presumably for Parkinson's disease. And meanwhile, the New York Times has reported that the Met is once more considering Levine's immediate future. Russian soprano Anna Trepko confided on social media that she picked up a virus and checked herself overnight into hospital. She estimates several days of treatment and recovery. That's at the Paris Opera, where she was supposed to sing Verdi's Il Trovatore, and she's been replaced by the Chinese soprano Hui Hei. Also at the Paris Opera, General Director Stefan Liesner has rolled out an original season for the 2016-2017 season, 11 new opera productions, including a world premiere. Hollywood director Sofia Coppola will direct her first opera, a production of Verdi's La Traviata, at the Rome Opera in May. The Classical Grammys were awarded last night, and for Best Opera, conductor Seiji Ozawa's recording of Ravel's L'Enfant et les Sortilèges beat out the Boston Baroque's recording of Monteverdi's The Return of Ulysses, which featured a friend of our show, Jennifer Rivera Rice. In its 78th season, Pittsburgh Opera will offer its first full production of Daniel Sonnenberg's The Summer King, an opera about Josh Gibson, the star catcher who played in baseball's Negro Leagues as a member of the Pittsburgh Crawfords. The production marks Pittsburgh Opera's first world premiere, and yes, I do mean Pittsburgh. And as Oliver said, Leontine Price turned 89 last Wednesday. The American soprano was the first African-American woman to sing a name role at La Scala. She was Aida in 1960, and that's the two-minute drill. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. Now I hear you say an opera ain't your thing, but get this. We tackle everything about opera and body slam it into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of in-depth analysis, outrageous opinions, and good, clean fun. You might even learn something. Opera class, sports radio crass. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. Opera class, sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. Who made the grade? Here's Monday evening quarterback. And we are back on Opera Box Score on WNUR, 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. I'm George Cedarquist in here with Oliver Camacho. Oliver, what's up? Well, before we get into Monday evening quarterback, um, if you're listening to this a broadcast uh, as a podcast on Tuesday, then it was, in fact, yesterday that the Grammys were handed out. But uh, the Grammys are still going on as we're recording this, uh, this, podca- or this uh, broadcast. And uh, they have kind of put the classical awards, like they've ghettoized them and like they're like not broadcast on TV. They happen like in the afternoon. So all my friends who are you know, nominated uh, already know the result before the broadcast even goes up. But they do have that as a streaming. Oh, that's bizarre. Yeah, they have that as like a streaming thing yeah. uh, on air. Yeah, it's broadcast on Monday this year for whatever reason. So, as you said, the Ravel. I thought it was Sunday. Usually Grammys. those award shows are on Sunday. Exactly. It's, it's, it's going on right now. It shows you how closely I watch <laughs> So like yeah. the Grammy. Don't even get me started on the Oscars, by the way. I You literally could not pay me to watch the Oscars. Oh, I can't wait. It's like oh, the Gay Olympics. God, what a waste of the time. Gay Super Bowl. Such the a Gay waste Olympics are already gay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So the uh, Ravel, L'Enfant, Les Sortilèges beat out um, Yanufa of Donald Runnocles conducting uh, the Monteverdi Ulysses we talked about, which has our friend Jenny Rivera on it. Yannick Nazetsagan's Abduction from the Seraglio, and then an opera that I actually saw in the theater, the um, Boston Early Music Festival production of Stefani's Niobe, Regina di Tebe. Um, so I feel like they, the Grammys are kind of like 
choosing ambassadors for every genre that they give awards to, you know, and it's not necessarily what's the most cutting edge within our field right. or the most innovative or whatever. But and isn't know. that really the point of these award shows, honestly? Like the Tony Awards are not about merit. The Tony Awards are about marketing. People who win the Tony Awards are the shows that need to do well at the box office. And so that's why they win the Tony, so they can say they won the Tony, so they can make more ticket sales. It's nothing to do with artistic merit at all. I don't think the Oscars are any different, and I don't think the Grammys are any different. Hmm. Well, I feel like the Oscars, at least the, the movies that get a lot of attention, are not big box office hits, typically. So the Oscars might be doing something else than the Grammys are doing. Well, I, like... I think we all know what else the Oscars are doing, or should we say not doing. <laughs> Uh, so white. Um, so the best solo performance uh, classical just went to Joyce DiDonato for a recital she gave at Wigmore Hall with Antonio Papano, a accompanist. And she beat out Jonas Kaufman, my husband, uh, and Chichita Bartoli, my ex-wife, among other people. So good for you, Joyce. You are like she's like the Beyonce of classical music, you know. Don't, yeah. Don't mess with Queen. With don't. Queen D, you know. Don't. Was there anything else from the uh, no, no, two-minute no. drill that, that was of interest to you? <laughs> no. Um, well, yes. Um, Anna Netrebko. Did she have the Zika? What's going on with her? Yeah, I, I think she just had a tummy bug, probably. Mm. But uh, you she know, just got married. Maybe she had a bad cake. Yeah. 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 Kind of like. Well, maybe a, she has what Giovanna has. Well, I, we forgot to say where yeah, Javana is, is Javana today. today? Uh, Jav- well, okay, so this is what Javana said. She said that she uh, slipped on some ice and threw out her back. And mm. that um, – so oh she gosh. was like immobilized and she wasn't able to come to the show. El Nino struck again. Well, I'll tell you who was really upset was my mm. son because my son, he likes to like – do the pop quiz game yeah. with her, and he likes to ask her a question, yeah. and then I had to tell him that Giovanna wasn't going to be there, so we weren't going to do pop quiz. So then, well, he now had he a knows meltdown. when to applaud in a Verdi opera. So it's true. Yeah. His response to Giovanna being out, he was like, "Can't she get a wheelchair?" That's literally what he said. <laughs> I know. You know, I'm 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 sad that Giovanna slipped. I mean, you know, she's pretty top heavy though, so it makes it makes sense. Okay, <laughs> that, that's a compliment. Yeah. You know. Please send your comments to uh, <laughs> <laughs> Opera Box Score Gmail Care of George Cedar Quist. <laughs> send pictures. Um, all right. So I saw Rosen Cavalier on Saturday, and you know, this is an opera I've been listening to forever. And I have to say that Rosen Cavalier is one of my favorite operas. Whenever I've tried to listen to the whole thing, yeah. it does require a lot of concentration because it's almost four hours long. And whenever I've tried to like watch a VHS, because I used to have a VHS, yes, oh my goodness. for those of you who know it's like a tape. Um, yeah, I, I could never get through the whole Please thing. Please be kind you know? and rewind. <laughs> exactly. But seeing it in the theater, it actually is dramatically tight. Like, it works. Yeah. Like, there's very little, like, lag dramatically. And uh, Lyric Opera did a great job of keeping it tight. Yeah. Um, the first and second acts were very strong. The third act is always problematic to me. It does sprawl a little bit. And I think... I'm sorry to say that the stage director lost a couple of ideas and some of her, her choices, his choices, yeah, uh, were, um, were not very – Martina Weber. Martina Weber, right? Okay, Martina mm-hmm. Weber, yeah. yeah. Some of the choices that she made weren't very clear, uh, but she really was helped out with an amazing performance of uh, Matthew Rose as Baranox, who probably wins my top grade uh, for uh, overall performance in this show. Um, the Marshallin was played by uh, – Evanston alum, a Northwestern alum, uh, Amanda Majeski, mm-hmm. 
the Octavian, the title character of the Cavalier of the Rose, uh, played by Sophie Koch for the first half of the run, and then mm-hmm. they're going to bring in Alice Koo for the okay, second so half. Okay, so I'm going to see Alice yes. when I go uh, back. And then the um, Sophie, the ingenue soprano, uh, played by uh, a German. Uh, her name is somewhere on this program. Yikes. Um, I should really know this. Uh, let's see. A singer, a notary. Oh, man. You would think that it'd be right there. I thought it'd be right at the top, right? <laughs> it's not. Um, it's like a, it's a major part. They, they in credit the, show. the non-speaking role of Mohammed. <laughs> Sophie. <laughs> Sophie is like the other. Okay, major... well, clearly you're going to give a D to whoever wrote the program. Okay, Sophie von Fandenal, Christina Lanshammer. Um, she was actually solid vocally. I mean, this is a, almost like a Heldon Sabret role. I mean, it's like relentlessly high. And the orchestration is very heavy, and she sang it with a lot of ease. But I was really bothered by this. This is really going to sound really strange, but by the tone of her skin, okay, and by her brown hair. And like, I expect Sophie to be somehow. Is this hashtag Strauss or White? <laughs> I What's expect your point? Sophie to be very pale, yeah, and to have fairer features, yeah, even lighter yeah. colored hair, yeah. So that might be my own like uh, self hatred creeping into my review here. But she she sang great. <laughs> Amanda Majeski, I would call her a friend of mine. I mean, we've met, at yeah. least an acquaintance yeah. of mine. And yeah. she is definitely a formidable actress. Yeah. And she has beautiful tone quality and a very rich lower register. But she's still very young. I mean, she, I, I know. She, she's got to be in her either late 20s or early 30s. Oh, my most. goodness. So, um, well, how'd she do? She did, I mean, with her resources, she was amazing. Yeah. She went for everything. She phrased beautifully. She took a lot of time. Uh, and she, you know, she made a very, like, she gave a very heavy performance, and it's a very heavy role, you know. Yeah. But the voice doesn't yet match all the intention mm-hmm. yet. I think mm-hmm. in a couple of years she's mm-hmm. going to be like the Marshall into beat. We'll have like our TKO segment, you know, yeah. with her. But it's still a little bit underripe. We should get her on the show. Yeah, yeah. especially if she hears this review. <laughs> <laughs> and then I have to say, Sophie Hawk, I know her mainly from, she sings the role of Charlotte in Verter Everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I've seen her Charlotte. By Massonet. Right? Yeah. Yep. But um, I f- somehow the voice isn't um, legato enough mm. for this role. She sang every note correctly and it was it was fine, but I just, I wasn't touched. So oh, this production gets a B plus for having actually a really great cast and a great production and two-thirds of the show was directed really beautifully. Yeah. Uh, it just came shy of actually touching me, you know, and making me feel the feels, you know. But Well, let me ask you this yeah. then. Um, what What's the design like? What's the production it's a very, like? They're sharing their production with uh, San Francisco. Uh, it's a very old-fashioned production mm-hmm. with, like, you know, giant tall sets of, like, Viennese, you know, um, richness. Yeah. Uh, and uh, everything is like you know not embroidered. What do you call that when uh, molded has beautiful molding yeah, on it? Sure, you know, the furniture sure. is like overstuffed. Like it's it's a gorgeous show, and it makes you feel like you you spent your money well. Yeah, <laughs> this opera ticket tonight. You know, and another thing they did I have to I have to add um, between the first and the second act. They're doing this sort of new outreach thing. I think you'll probably see it too, mm-hmm. where the stage manager comes out and makes an announcement that we are going to lift up the curtain and you're going to get to watch the scene change. Oh, that and old trick. Okay. Is that a trick? Yeah. I feel like God, the. Dude, I, I've seen that. I before. feel like the borrowing from the Met broadcasts where. You know, you get to see behind the scenes. Like, I really enjoyed it. And, like, he narrated basically the scene change and introduced, like, the head carpenter and whatnot. And I I thought it was a really nice touch. And I feel like 
this is also outreach, you know, like letting your audience know what is actually going on. It's not things just don't happen, you know, by machinery. And like, you know, you just drop the curtain and the next scene is up like it's work, you know, like there's drills coming on. There's like guys with saggy pants, like lifting big pieces of plywood, you know. Oh, and, is that what they call it? Yes. Uh, uh, but, you know, this is – I related to this. So I, I have a, had a long career in the restaurant business. And, like, I've worked in very expensive, beautiful restaurants yeah. where I still don't get this feeling that the customer understands that it's not just me that's serving them. It's, like, 20 people that you don't even notice are serving mm-hmm. you. And mm-hmm. so you're leaving me this tip. It's not going to me. I'm dividing it in parts to all these people. And I feel like the yeah. you know the opera audiences need to know that, too. It's like – your your donation to the opera house is going to pay all these people's families and whatnot, you know, and they're part of the show. You know? It's imp- I mean, it's important. It's really important to know that. John Coleman is the stage manager mm-hmm. for uh, Rosen Cavalier, who's a colleague of mine. We're in the same union, AGMA, oh. the American Guild of Musical Artists. Nice. Uh, he is a totally first-rate guy, and um, I would actually, I really hope that when I go, he does that because he will. Um, I, I found out from somebody. Okay, good. Said. Yeah. Uh, it, as you said, Oliver, that. I'm going to call it a trick. It does tend to be a, an outreach thing where, you know, that uh, theater is chock-a-block full of 3,000 middle and high schoolers. And the last thing you want to do is let them out of the theater in the intermission to go have a like, illicit cigarette at a bus stop. So you keep them in the theater, but you got to entertain them somehow because they have the attention span of a flea and they can't turn on their phone. So you raise the curtain and you show them, as Oliver said, what's going on behind the stage. The smart twist, of course, because Lyric Opera is quite smart, is that then they're able, not with a teen audience, but with an adult audience that has some money, is able to say, look, this is how this whole machine works. And this is where, in Oliver's word, this is where your tip or your donation or your ticket purchase is going to, is to make all of these things happen. But let's not have it be anonymous. Let's not have it be faceless. Let's show you how it all works. Plus, I think there's something always a little magical for people who aren't in the theater to see how the whole thing works. Exactly. Exactly. And, like, I think that that it's adding value to the experience because you can see so many spectacular things now on your phone even. But you can't see that, you know. On your phone or on your TV, you it's know? it's kind of genius, you know. It's it's kind of like that's trying to get people into the opera house and say, "Here's one more little thing that you're going to get to see uh, purely by virtue of being here yeah. in the theater." Two more things I want to add before we wrap up. Um, I forgot to mention mm-hmm. uh, that two Ryan Center alums, actually one is still in the Ryan Center, um, Laura. Vilda or Laura Wilda mm-hmm. or Laura Wilde, maybe, who play, plays the... Laura Ingalls Wilder, I think it is. Her name is Laura Wilde. Uh, <laughs> she is uh, the Mariana, who's like sort of like the governess of Sophie. Uh, she was amazing. And she has a very small role, but she knocked out of the park. Gorgeous voice, great acting. No small parts, only small actors. And then and the person who, who stole the show, who literally stole the show, uh, Ryan Center alum Renee Barbera, mm. uh, the tenor singing the Italian singer. So right. he nailed that thing is so hard, yeah. and he nailed it. He crushed it. So. Tell me about the uh, orchestra. You got a grade for them? You know, it's it's tough. I mean, these are all young singers on stage. I think maybe the Sophie Koch and the uh, Matthew Rose, you know, were the most veteran singers on the stage. A lot of youngsters up there, and. It's Strauss. It's a heavy orchestra, and it's yeah. it's tough. I know it's really tough for whatever, who's ever conducting to try to find the balance. And who was conducting the performance that you saw? Sir uh, Andrew Davis? No, it was uh, Edward Gardner. 
Mm-hmm. I do not know Edward Gardner. I but think he's English. Probably. I'm going to guess. Um, yeah, so there's... Or am I thinking of John Elliot Gardner? You're probably thinking of John yeah, Gardner. Okay. Maybe they're related. Maybe they're lovers. Who knows? Maybe they're father and son. Oh, that's nicer. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, the, it's a huge orchestra for this show. And the, there are so many really sumptuous moments where if I was conducting, I would also want to, like, mm-hmm. ramp it up. Yeah. But um, often to the peril of the singer because we had a lot of covered sopranos. So what's know? the grade for the orchestra then? The orchestra played beautifully. Yeah. I mean, I would give them a B plus as well. I mean, I, I really enjoyed myself. And I mean, I haven't been doing this great thing for that long. Sure. And, and like, I was not distracted during the show. I was not bored during the show. So that is usually a very good sign. Usually if I find fault with something, I begin to like look around and try to figure out what I can enjoy, you know, besides the performance. And I really was engaged in the show. Here's so. my last question for you. And it's, it's a larger question, which is if you're Lyric Opera of Chicago, why would you program Der Rosenkavalier? What's, what's the benefit of that? And I'm not saying you shouldn't. Yeah. Actually, it's, it's an opera that I would kill to direct. I love Strauss and I yeah. love this piece. But I'm interested in your take, Oliver, on why you would pick it. Because it's the because lyric is one of the few opera houses in America that can actually put it on mm-hmm. with the amount of costume. I mean, there's so many people in this yeah, show. It is a cast of thousands. Yeah, with with you know the costuming, with the set design, with the orchestra, and trying to get a cast, you know, that would would want to come to Chicago to do it, you know, and the audience loves it. I mean, I had really good seats, and uh, thank you very much, Lyric Opera uh, Publicity Department. Uh, for those beautiful seats. Dang, they do love you. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's. I'm not surprised that the people that sit down there where I sat don't usually stay for the whole opera. You know, maybe actually the opera itself is not why they go to the opera. Wait, you is know? that you were you were railing against those people a couple of weeks ago, I, and you were all over them <laughs> for leaving early, and now you're saying it's okay? No, no, I'm not saying it's okay. So, I mean, I felt that at the end of the third act, at this beautiful finale. Um, that the audience was really appreciative. Okay. The people who had, who had stayed for the third act <laughs> were very appreciative. But I definitely heard, you know, the bravos and cheers from the balcony yeah. where, like, the diehards go, you yeah. know. And uh, it's a four-hour show, so they ask the audience to come at 6.30. Right. And uh, it's, a, it's a long night in the theater, you know. But I, like I said, I was never bored, so... I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, Der Rosenkopf there by Richard Strauss at Lyric Opera of Chicago through the middle of March, I think. There's a link on our website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com, that you can check out. You can also read some of the articles about the segment that is coming up next. We're talking about English National Opera. This is a company in crisis, and you are going to want to stick around for that. Opera Box Score on 89.3 FM. WNUR. We're going to step aside for a quick PSA. We'll be right back. Keep it here. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of play-by-play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. Shock Talk on Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and Giovanna Jacques.
We are back on Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. I'm George Cedarquist, your host, along with Oliver Camacho. What's up, my man? And no Giovanna Jock. No Giovanna. Giovanna is hungover again. I mean, she threw out her back. <laughs> Poor girl. Air quotes. No, I, well, I, I, I do feel sorry for her. But she's, I got a bad feeling she's going to be angry. <laughs> I've, I have a bad back, too. It, it happens when you get older. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know how old she is? Actually, I don't know. She's like 24 I know. It's like crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's really crazy. Yeah. Uh, Too young for back problems, that's for sure. It's true. It's true. Mm. There is a big mess happening over in London. I'm going to set it up for you, and Oliver and I are going to talk you through it. English National Opera is London's second largest opera company. They are different from the Royal Opera House or Covent Garden, as Royal Opera House is known, because that is the location in London where the Opera House is. English National Opera, or ENO, is based at a theater called the Coliseum, which is just off of Trafalgar Square, where Nelson's Column is, where the National Gallery is. And all of their work is performed in English. The company began... Ah, I see what they did there in the name English National Opera. There you go. Mm. Smart kids, right? The company started in the 30s and originally performed at Sadler's Wells, which is where Gilbert and Sullivan's operas Mm. went up at the end of the 19th century. And then they moved to the Coliseum, where they really made a a real case about performing opera in English. And it was such a unique thing. I mean, nobody in the heyday of English national opera, 60s, 70s, 80s, I mean, nobody did opera in English. I mean, unless it had been written in English. I, th- I mean, I thought that there was a time where people were doing translations a lot in vernacular. I, I, but I don't feel like it was that era, okay. necessarily. Um, recently, there's been some problems, and here are the problems. First of all, this year, English National Opera had its arts budget cut by £5 million, pounds, mm-hmm. which is about $7 million, which is about, I think it's a third of the subsidy that they get from the government. Okay, side note, I mean, no opera company in America would get, get $7 million from the government hmm. anywhere. All the opera companies in America, the money comes from philanthropists and individual donors and ExxonMobil and, and that sort of thing. So uh, ENO had its budget cut, and this caused a lot of problems. The artistic director, this guy John Barry, resigned... Uh, there was talk by their head of their board that the chorus was going to be cut down, and then that got the chorus all up in arms. The deal with the chorus was this, was that there are 44 choristers at ENO, which I that sounded small to me. That's, when I, yeah, I when mean, I, 11 and apart, roughly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was small. Uh, but there's 44 choristers, and... With this cut in the arts budget, the choristers were being asked to take a 25% pay cut. That's a lot. And they were saying, okay, we may well go on strike then. Mm. And uh, if you go to our webpage, operaboxscore.squarespace.com, you can read some of these articles. You can look at some of the photos. The choristers had these awesome T-shirts printed that say, we give 100%, they give 75%. Zing. (laughs) <laughs> but it's it's well put. So basically, the, the company is in dire financial straits. Uh, this was then compounded by the head of music, Mark Rigglesworth, writing an article for The Guardian 
in which he said, this company actually needs to expand at this time. It has to be fiscally responsible. It's got to make some cuts somehow, somewhere, but they can't be to the artistic quality of the work that we're doing. And in fact, rather than reducing the number of shows or reducing the artistic quality of them, we actually need to expand because that's how we're going to capture the audience that we want and that we need, frankly. Is that old to... adage? Like when you're a salesman, you have to like drive a nicer car even though you can't afford it or something like that. Like, yeah, that, I'm so bad with stuff like that. But you know what I'm talking about, right? Now. Oliver, that's very Willie Loman of you. Uh, so that's the article that, that Rigglesworth wrote in, in The Guardian. So... Oliver, what, I mean, what's uh, knowing the backstory now? Kind of, what's what's your first hot take on all that, and and then I can respond to you with with what I'm thinking. Well, I, it's it's actually really tough because I am two minds of it. I think that at least in the U.S., there are salaries for, you know, uh, orchestra members and chorus whatever that are phenomenal, mm-hmm. and they should be because those jobs are very competitive, and. You know, you study for years and you pay so many hundreds of thousands of dollars to get this education and auditioning and yeah. paying for lessons and whatnot. And so you should be able to be in a top-level musician's job and be paid like mm-hmm. that, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm not angry that people earn that type of money. But back – I don't know if this applies to England, but, you know, back in the day, they used to have, like, these recording contracts or these, like, television contracts. So if they ever were to appear – on TV or if their recording was ever played on the way, they would get all these royalties. Right? Right. And it would just compound and make those jobs ridiculous, you know, like mm. amazing and good for them, you know. And I don't know if that's happening at ENO, if like there are these things that are compounding what these uh, musicians would be making and this is part of their contract that we don't know about. Well, you know? I'll, I'll answer that quickly. Basically, the chorus was told by the, the board or whatever – if we cut down your contract, we're still going to try and find you other work, say, during the off-season to try yeah. and, and supplement that. But then it turned out that that was BS and yeah. that people who did find that supplementary work would then have their paycheck in the season cut to, down to 50%. So that was a weird, like, numbers game. Yeah, we, we've seen how this works with, like, New York City Opera and with other companies where first they start asking the dancers to, like, not be engaged full-time and then the mm-hmm. chorus and then, you know, then you end up with these shipshot productions with no set design and, like, you're just managing loss, you know? And so I, in a certain way, I, I agree with Mark Wigglesworth. It's like you have to be bold. You know, you have to take a chance and you have to, you know, figure out what is wrong. Why aren't people coming? Yeah. What are we doing wrong? You know, yeah. we have the talent here. Yeah. We have these people. We have to use them, you know, mm-hmm. I figure out a way to, to keep them occupied and, you know, put everybody's heads together and do something amazing like this. Keep talking about this magic flute, not this magic flute, but the magic flute from the Komisha opera. You know, everybody wants to see this show, you know, the magic flute you're referring to Oliver is, is their current production. Right now. Just coming to Minnesota, I think. We should go. Oh, it is? Oh, yeah. we could road trip yeah. Yeah. up there to see that. Uh, it's, I, I think it's, it's, a new, it's a new staging, but yeah. there was a moment um, in the, it's towards the end of the show where Zarastro, he appeals to the other 
masons for help, essentially, yeah. you know, to help Tamino and Pamina through the trials of water and fire. And in this, <laughs> Give us your money right now. Exactly. And what <laughs> happened in, in one of the most recent performances is that I don't know if it was directed this way or if that was kind of a judgment call made in the, in the, in the moment, but the character of Zarastro did that same plea. It didn't change the text or the music, but, but turned to the audience. Mm. And it was really clear what he was saying. Yeah. But I mean, like, there's a show, for example, like, oh, you know, I want to, I want to bring this full circle, okay? Because in pop music, you know, they have figured out a way to incorporate, you know, like this. I, I'm, I know I'm this is dating myself, but like Pink, she did that performance where she did all this like cir- <laughs> these circus acts. I don't know if you saw it, but it's like in the Grammys or I know. You know, I, I don't watch the Grammys. Remember? Okay, well, <laughs> um, there are pop artists now who have brought in spectacle into their shows. Obviously they're working with much bigger budgets and it's just like, you know, whatever they, it's one person that really is, needs to get all the attention, but it's right. not like you're paying a hundred cast opera or whatnot, but you know, they figured out a way to get people to pay for tickets to go see a, a stadium show. You know? mm-hmm. And also I have to say that the audience knows when to clap when they go see <laughs> pop music. <laughs> no, but I mean this magic flute, um, is so creative and mm-hmm. everybody wants to see it and it sells out. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There have to be more ideas. Hamilton, the musical. Have you heard of this thing? Of course. Okay. Sure. Okay, good. So I haven't seen it. I don't even know the music, but I know that everybody wants to see it right. and that it's really good. And, you know, wherever it goes, it's going to, it's going to sell out, you know? Yeah. What is Broadway doing that we're not doing? You know, what, what is going on stage? Yes, it's a new piece and it's definitely telling stories of, you know, of different people and it's whatever, it's using idioms that people are more comfortable with, blah, you know. Opera can do this. There's no question opera can do it. Uh, here's why I'm upset about the ENO closure or the potential for closure is uh, so I, for high school, I went to boarding school in England mm. and Basically, the the operas that I saw as a young teen were all at English National Opera. We would go on field trips from mm-hmm. my school in a little minivan. And did you understand the English? Uh, I, other supertitles there? I can't. The, there, were there supertitles? There, there were supertitles, okay. even though all the shows were being done in English. But, I mean, the number of operas that I've seen at the Coliseum from the very first opera I ever saw, which was... Um, La Clemenza di Tito, mm-hmm. Mozart. I saw Die Soldaten by <laughs> Zimmerman there. Uh, much later in my life, I saw Caligula by Wolfgang Rimm. What the hell? Which is, this is an I'm sorry, what the heck? Awesome <laughs> opera. I'm trying to think of some of the other operas I've seen at the Coliseum. Now, look, some of them were boring. That production of Clemenza was pretty boring. That's a tough opera to see as your first opera. And so. when you're 15, I mean, yeah. a lot of the field yeah. trips, yeah. you know, you would go and as an excuse to basically spend the second act in the pub next door having a oh. cigarette and a, okay. and a drink. Because it was like a, you were escaping. A, How old were you? 15? Yeah, 15. Okay. You know, a younger drinking age okay. over there. But there was a, a big place in my heart for ENO. I hope they can figure this out. It doesn't look good. And I'll tell you why it doesn't look good is because there was an ad posted for the artistic director position on a London... Like back page or something like that? Like a London headhunter website. Okay. I put a link to it on the on our webpage, actually. So Mark Wigglesworth, is it that his job or... Wigglesworth is the 
artistic director. Music, music director. director. Okay. The artistic director, John Barry, stepped down and hasn't been replaced. How this company can survive without an artistic director is impossible, of course. I need to apply but, for that job. Well, the deadline is the 17th, so you've got two oh, days. Okay. I, I almost just <laughs> – To get my I, references together. I was looking at I was like, I should just do this. Just... Leo, can you write me a reference letter? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, clearly this is the wrong way to you – know, Go about it. That's not how you hire an artistic director of a major European house is by putting an ad out there. I mean, hmm. you talk, you go behind closed doors and you talk to people who you want to do it. You don't do a big casting call like this. So this is hilarious. I mean, uh, if you listen to Opera Now podcast, I think at one point I talked about how all these English uh, and German um, our general directors and right. are coming to the States and right. I feel like this creating a vacuum in Europe. <laughs> this, it's happened. You yeah, know, is the vacuum. Is that, is that the case? Really? Who, yeah. Who's coming? Um, I just, I feel like every time I turn around, somebody is being appointed to a, a GD position in the ah, States okay. is, to is like British or admin. German. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that is, I thought you so, meant just kind of in the ranks. They yeah. were European directors yeah. directing in, you know, Tulsa and Portland and places like that. That's not happening. No, right? I'm talking about administration. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, good. Because it's certainly not happening the other way. I mean, American directors are not going to Germany and and working. I'm trying to do that and, and <laughs> having sort of mixed success, really. Uh, what about Opera Box Score? You can't go to Germany. I well, we talked about Opera Box Score of Deutsch. Yeah, Opera Box. I've been Score. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been thinking about how to how to convey the idea of what Opera Box Score is to my European yeah, have to colleagues. Think of all the soccer terms, or the, excuse me, the football. I don't know if a box Footsie score ball, exists. You know? If okay. the idea of a box score even exists in in a what are the German... sports they have in Germany? Uh, they're really big into field hockey. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but, but besides soccer, swimming. What else do they do well in the Olympics? Uh, Not running. Uh, they're more like a Winter that. Olympics yeah. country, don't you think? They always look really good though when they come out for the, when they come out for the, you know, the athletes parade or whatever you call it. You know, the entrance of the athletes. They look. They look. Awesome. Did you know that that is the most watched part of the entire Olympics? It should be more it's, than it's any amazing. event. More than women's gymnastics. No, it is. The parade huh. is the biggest part of the whole thing. I think if you like, maybe overall in the country, but if you like go to like Boys Town. You know, yeah. in Chicago, you'd like do the Nielsen rating right there, you know, in Halsted. Yeah. It's probably going to be like diving. Yeah, gonna, I know, can see that. Yeah, diving or men's gymnastics, obviously. Sure, you know. sure. And then, of course, like figure skating, you know. For winter, yeah, yeah. I, I gotcha. How that relates <laughs> to the future of ENO, I don't know. Maybe we solved it. Maybe they need more spandex. I, you know, I feel like they could just import that all from <laughs> Munich. Pretty, pretty much. But it's really sad about the chorus. Yeah. Like, we're not trying to make fun of this thing. This is uh, it's tough. The chorus thing is a mess. You know, I don't, yeah, I don't know what you do. And, and, I mean, it could happen on these shores, too. You know, it was very close to oh, happening, happening at the Metropolitan the Opera <laughs> yeah. uh, two years ago, I think it was. And that was kind of an 11th hour reprieve. So it's definitely problematic. But you would say that ENO is a company for... Like the people, it's is it like more of like an inexpensive experience, and they're doing stuff in English, so they're trying to appeal to like you know more of your middle class, lower middle class. There's know. no question, and really, what if you look at their materials and their website, and something they've always done is not just performed in London, but taken their shows on the road, and um, tried to get it to Birmingham and to Manchester. These are cities, Leeds. These are cities that have opera companies, of course, but I mean. England is so London-centric, and so if you can't get to London, you feel like you're really not in the know. 
it's different than here where you can exist very happily outside of New York. Yeah, but what I'm trying to say is that d- does the relationship between Covent Garden and, you know, uh, mirror the relationship between like the 1% and the 99%, you know, like are, are, are only ah, the I top elite companies going to survive? Like the Met, it's going to be the only company that survives. Yeah. And, you know, companies like Lyric and LA, will all the other smaller companies just fall apart, you know? We shall see. Keep it here on Opera Box Score, 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. We're going to wrap this show up and take you home with Good Call, Bad Call. It is coming up next. Good Call, Bad Call on Opera Box Score. All right. Good call, bad call. When we think about something, usually in the opera world, although I have to admit, Oliver, mine is nothing to do with opera this (laughs) week. Uh, But I'm going to let you go first. Well, bad call, obviously, that I sent you the wrong clip, but that you will make it into a good call by adding it to the end of the podcast. At this point in the show, you will have heard it. I think I'm going to put it right in the middle. Okay, awesome. So podcast listeners, nothing happened. (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> my real good call for this week uh, is the Met broadcast of Il Trovatore, an opera they seem to broadcast every single year. They certainly perform it every year, but right. it always makes it onto the broadcast. And I usually am just underwhelmed by it. But the cast they assembled right now at the Met for this opera is amazing, especially the baritone. I would never say this about a Verdi baritone. His name is Juan Jesus Rodriguez, and he's Spanish. And mm-hmm. usually... That is the role that suffers the most, the baritone, uh, the Conte Luna, uh, at, in the opera Trovatore. But they really found an amazing baritone. And I, I want to follow this guy's career. He was stunning. And uh, Angela Mead was the Leonora. And, you know, she's just wiping the floor with everybody these days. But um, he really was toe-to-toe with her in, like, vocal licks and prowess. And, nice. Yeah. Um, that's, that's basically it. My good call. The bad call I had for today is that Stitcher has been down all week. So if you listen to this show uh, via podcast, via Stitcher, who knows what's going on with them. Hopefully they'll come back soon. I'll add to that bad call then. SoundCloud is also allegedly on the out and out. So we may need to find a different (laughs) place to host this whole thing. I I just read that, that SoundCloud. Okay. Well, is, we'll just we'll just send us a self-addressed stamp envelope, listeners, and we'll send you a tape. Cassette tape, a, v- right? a VHS yeah, exactly. tape, yeah, of the podcast. <laughs> my my good call is a TV show that I actually watched with my wife, I, and you know, I never watch TV. This is not even a new show. It shows you how far behind I am. It's called The Great British Baking Show. Yeah, I know The Baking Show. Yeah, it's called The Great yeah, British yeah. Bake Off in England. Uh, it's on PBS. This is a very British-centric. Podcast. It has been. Today, yeah. Yes, I've told you a bit about my past. Yeah, we talked exactly. about ENO about and your now 15 about year old pub drinking. And exactly. And I thought you were going to say something else like being in a car with your girlfriend or something. Cottaging? Like <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, the show, The Great British Bake Off, Great British Baking Shows, it, it's called on PBS. It's in like its fifth season now. I, yes, I don't know why. It's unrelated to opera. Yeah. But it, well, they do play classical music oh, okay. to kind of yeah. ratchet up the tension, I suppose, as yeah. to who's like Victoria Sponge Cake is going to turn into a mess. I hope that those are getting the royalties from that. But it was, um, it was a lot of fun. So yeah. you have seen it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great show. That is our show for this evening. Thanks for joining us. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S dot com.
Here on Opera Box Score, Leo runs our soundboard. For WNUR, our programming director is Bill Scholney, and the general manager is Maddie Higgins. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Opera Box Score. Be sure to like our Facebook page, and if you know people who would enjoy our show, help us spread the word by sharing our posts. You can email us at operaboxscore@gmail.com and suggest a Chalk Talk segment. What topic would you like to weigh in on? Or suggest a TKO matchup for our podcast. Which two opera singers do you want to see duke it out? On our website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com, you can stream archived episodes and learn more about our team. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher while they're still around. Our next episode will be yours for the taking on Monday, February 22nd. And hey, don't just listen to it. Leave comments, reviews, and stars. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to keep the conversation going about opera, even if you're hungover. Street Beat is up next. You're listening to WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's Sound Experiment.